The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Professor Mark Rourke is our guest today. I'm so pleased to have him here. Thanks for being here, Professor Rourke. Thank you for having me. Professor Rourke is the Louisiana Outside Council of Health and Ethics Endowed Professor of Law at the Southern University Law Center and the author of the forthcoming book with Cambridge University Press titled Resilient Property in an Age of Crises co-authored with Lorna Fox Omaini. He is primarily interested in the study of housing and homelessness, law and humanities, and the way narratives and norms interact in the discourse of property law. He also focuses on scale and the creation of legal institutions. Thanks so much for being here, Professor Vork. So you are also involved with an upcoming vulnerability publication Law and Structuring Individual and Institutional Responsibility Beyond Equality and Freedom. Can you tell me a bit about your chapter and involvement with that piece? Yeah, so the forthcoming book focuses around resilience and the role of resilience in um, the role of legal institutions in shaping resilience um, for individuals. And so I think one of the interesting concepts that has drawn uh, myself and Lorna into vulnerability theory and thinking about vulnerability theory as it shapes our approach to um, uh, property institutions and the way property institutions are expressed is its potential for understanding property as that as an asset of resilience and particularly thinking about who benefits from those assets of resilience. Um, I think oftentimes the way we think about property we think about property from the standpoint of the um, the ownership as the primary beneficiary or the owner as the primary beneficiary of those assets of resilience um, that are property rights or property claims. And I think that, and we, we argue in squatting in the state that, um, that there are more than just property owners that benefit from the property institution, that the state itself has a stake in the resilience that's afforded from property and that oftentimes it's hidden in those disputes. And so property as a framing device oftentimes cuts out or makes it seem as if the state is not intricately involved when we argue that the state very much is. So that's part of what we what we hope to bring to the table in, in thinking about this resiliency project is thinking about where those sources of resiliency come from particularly as they interact in property, and then who, uh, who the beneficiaries of those resiliency assets are um, in the context of property disputes. How does this change the way that we usually talk about property? And what do you see as resilience that's provided by property? Um, so, I, so I think a lot of times, the structure of property law is designed to frame problems so that uh, so that the scale of problems is reduced 
um, to individuals. So for example, let's take a, a trespass, uh, a squatter trespass problem, for example. Um, you know, that problem is oftentimes framed as a problem between an owner and an intruder um, or framed from the perspective of um, neighbors against owners who don't who don't uh, take care of their property uh, in a sufficient way. But either way, you know, the way we normally think about that problem is we normally isolate that issue away from all other issues that complicate and make the problem um, more more difficult to see. And what we argue is we argue that problems like squatting, problems like the environment, problems like housing, um, these are complicated problems that 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 the framing device of property law um, limits our ability to actually um, see the real, um, policy challenges that lie ahead. Um, and so what, what we would argue is that focusing on that question of property as an asset of resilience allows us to get away from seeing uh, the problem through binary lenses and to expose the entire problem space uh, that lies ahead. Um, you know, one of the things that we've started saying in the last few few weeks, I would say, or last few months, um, amongst ourselves, is that um, in in many ways we've got to get out of the business of thinking exclusively through the paradigm of rights, and and really need to start thinking through the paradigm or the lens of resiliency gaps. So looking at where individuals lack the resiliency to, to fully participate in democratic processes, in legal processes that are designed to provide resilience in, in, in light of inherent vulnerabilities that we all experience. So just a really basic question before we start really talking about resilience. What is resiliency and how would you describe vulnerability theory? Like what's your elevator speech? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I think on the, on the front end, vulnerability theory for us uh, starts from the standpoint that uh, we all inherently experience the same levels of uh, the same kinds of uh, vulnerabilities or challenges um, that um, and that that extends to all of our human institutions. Um, one of the things that we articulate in squatting in the state is that the state as a human institution itself experiences the same vulnerabilities that that we experience, that individuals. It, it, it seeks out its own self-serving need for resilience um, in order to shore up its shore up the vulnerabilities that otherwise, uh, would leave it vulnerable and subject to tipping points um, as a as a as an as an as a human institution. Um, so, starting from that perspective, what what the way we see resilience is that resilience are the assets that we have collect that we have individually or collectively in human institutions 
that um, that that enable us to participate fully as human beings and human institutions and human uh, interactions um, uh, by by shoring up or um, reducing uh, the propensity for our vulnerabilities to limit our um, um, our our uh, full full opportunities to uh, participate. Um, so one of the things that, that um, so one of the things that we talk about or we've been talking about lately is resiliency gaps and the way that different individuals experience um, gaps in resiliency. And, and you asked where does resiliency come from or what is resiliency? And resiliency can be anything from the assets we have to the um, psychic values that have been um, uh, handed down to us. Uh, they can be the uh, the hidden things like um, uh, the the fact that uh, white Americans uh, are able to navigate economic systems um, easier than uh, persons of color, um, as 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 Dorothy Brown points out in Whiteness of Wealth. Um, you know, so so I mean, their assets of resilience are essentially both the visible and the hidden things that enable us to navigate um, through our vulnerabilities uh, in order to participate in, um, in, in human endeavors. I have a bit of an unrelated question that just I started thinking about as you were, as you were speaking. Do you feel like teaching helps you in the way that you write and in the questions co that come up in your research? Because you're a professor too, so you're, you're not just researching, you're teaching as well. Yeah, I, I do. You know, I've just kind of on a side note, um, I have noticed this, um, this pattern of, of when I am teaching a lot of different classes simultaneously, or doing a lot of different lectures in a lot of different areas, I tend to be more productive. Um, and one of the reasons why I think I'm more productive is because I'm inter interacting with lots of different um, um, materials that, that, that I wouldn't ordinarily interact with, you know, as opposed to if I'm teaching my standard, you know, uh, property course and secure transactions course, um, and that is all I'm teaching. And this is material I've covered every year on a daily basis, on a on a on a weekly basis. Those um, I oftentimes find that uh, I I have a harder time starting my writing process than if I'm interacting in a lot of different levels on, with different students, and that all of those classes become richer and they all kind of um, gen new conversation lines that come into thinking about um, prop, uh, property or, or, or other, other things I'm writing about. You know, the concept of a resiliency gap um, is, is something I began thinking about as language in the context of teaching uh, one of my property courses because I began, because I, I was talking about resource gaps 
in um, in landlord tenant law, uh, and the way that that landlords have different resources to effectuate their rights than tenants have in effectuating their rights. And so as I began thinking about that, I began thinking about the idea of a resiliency gap and the way that resiliency gaps emerge in these problems and that, you know, um, that maybe that's the language we really should be focusing on as we think about property problems is not so much the rights language, but really the resiliency problem and the resiliency gap that exists in asserting those rights. You know, and I'll just say one, one, one other quick thing on that. You know, um, the, the comment that sort of spurred me into thinking in that, that line of way of thinking was, was a comment I made to students that both landlords and tenants have rights. You know, so, you know, in theory, you know, when we look at landlords and we look at tenants, both landlords and tenants have rights that enable them to participate in the legal system and to assert claims related to property issues around housing. Um, but they don't have the same forms of assets of resilience. And so that resiliency gap that exists between landlords and tenants oftentimes favors landlords in housing disputes um, in ways that make it difficult for tenants to, to, to sustain um, security of tenure and housing for long periods of time. So when you bring that up, when you, when you change the framing in your classes and you start talking about resilience gaps and res the difference in resilience that landlords and tenants have, does that change the way that your students start thinking about the law at all or the way that they understand it? I think so. I, I mean, so I think students are, um, I think students come in with their own ideas about what they think the law is up to. And what we do in law school is we model and we challenge students to discover their own voice in the context of what the law is up to and what the law is doing in, the, in, in these ordinary problems. And that when we model that, there is a naturally a process where we give students a vocabulary or a new way of articulating um, the ideas of what we think the law is doing on the ground. Um, and so I think that that form of discourse in just articulating problems with a new form of a vocabulary and a new intricate way of seeing problems um, gives students a new toolkit to express their ideas. Um, and I think naturally students come in baked in with uh, preconceived notions about what they think the law should be doing. Um, I don't think that you can always change that. I think you can, you can challenge that. You can help students um, think about um, whether their preconceived notions of law have, um, have, um, have unfairly tilted their ability to be objective and understanding the way law is, is, um, is being carried out in the lives of everyday people. Um, but at the same time, those norms that they come in with are very powerful. And so, you know, what I think you do is you, um, you kind of help them along the journey and you hope that they 
um, that they at least have the ability to objectively evaluate themselves and perceive from themselves the the ways that their background narratives are shaping their interaction with the law rather than um, um, and, and, and have a powerful force and are able to effectively critically evaluate those background narratives. You know, I, so I'll, I'll say one thing and I'll, I'm going to pause here and say, you can edit this out if, if this is not, not right, if this isn't proper, but um the, uh, you know, when I, when I went to law school, um, I was, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a lawyer or not. And I was thinking about whether I wanted to go into the clergy. Um, and so I'd spent some time in divinity school and over the years, I've looked back and I've thought about my time in divinity school and my time in law school as being very similar. Um, because in a lot of ways, in divinity school, you know, you have a sense in which uh, individuals go into divinity school and they expect that the primary thing that they'll be doing is, you know, learning the facts of, of spiritual practice or learning, you know, learning the, the, the professionalism things of spiritual practice. And so much of what you do in divinity school is you, you spend time learning how, um, people before you have thought about the practice of divinity or thought about spiritual practice formation. And um, so much, so much of what you do is you spend time focusing on um, the, the various theologians that have, that have interacted in these problems over the years. And I think law school, when it's framed correctly, when it's framed in the right way, is never about the substance of the law. It's always about thinking about how individuals have interacted with the discourse of law. And so as professors, we model that discourse. The judges in cases that students read model that discourse. The law review writers model that discourse. Um, you know, And so it's a discourse that's evolved over time and has been shaped by time and shaped by context, very much like spiritual practice where you know you you find yourself if you're doing law school the right way and by the way as a law student i had no idea about this like you know this these are things you i think you figure out after law school after you've gone through it right but you know um as a as a looking back what i can see is that law school was an opportunity to learn how to develop my voice in the context of other voices that have been struggling around similar problems all for all this time so yeah that's so interesting so how did you eventually end up deciding that you wanted to go to law school that you wanted to go into academia and what made you choose property law why is why is that the thing that kept your interest? So the, the way I decided to go into law um, was I was really dissatisfied with where my, um, where my uh, spiritual upbringing 
home church or I guess home um, uh, religious background was going. Because as someone that grew up in the South, I grew up in evangelical uh, backgrounds. And one of the things I saw in those evangelical backgrounds was they were, they had become extremely politicized um, around what theologians would call, um, you know, different theologians have called the politics of Jesus, you know, which is this divisive idea, the, these divisive ideas, rather than the, the challenges of poverty, the challenges of spiritual practice, all these other, other, other things that, that would make that were more interesting to me. And ironically enough, I found that um, housing and I found that property law uh, sort of checked those boxes so that um, it enabled me to think about um, all of the different ways that we interact in resources around us as a community and that how those resources shape us. Um, you know, so, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I think about is I think about the fact that property is really, has really become an identity formation asset for a lot of people, you know, um, it shapes, you know, the communities we live in, it shapes the, the, um, uh, our, our ability to navigate, um, seamlessly through, um, troubling times. It, you know, all of those things kind of come and, and are enveloped into the concept of property. And in so many ways, what property represents, and, and the reason I was attracted to property, was it represents this dynamic dialogue that exists between individuals and states in shaping, about, in shaping how those identities are recognized um, in public discourse. Um, even when the state is arguably invisible from the property transaction. Um, and so, you know, you can see very particular places where that emerges, like the takings uh, line of cases or the, um, or, um, the, or in zoning disputes or anything that involves public. But we would argue, and I argue, that it emerges in our private lives as well and in private disputes, and that the state is very much present and the state is very much backing sort of individualized resilience uh, for some and not necessarily for others through the form of property. As you've been researching and writing in this field, have you seen any changes over the years in the ways that people are talking about property or talking about how, maybe not in those exact words, but how it is something that builds resilience? Yeah, I think, I think there's been a few, there, there have been some, um, there have been moments where concepts have emerged um, that have, that have had a shaping effect on how people write about property. So, you know, the progressive property movement, um, uh, which was, was finding its feet in, um, when I was starting in, in, in teaching, um, that, you know, that really became a foundational way that shaped the way, shaped the way a lot of people began to talk about property. 
Um, I think recently um, the concepts of sustainability have really began, begun to shape the way we think about property. So thinking about resources, thinking about impacts, thinking about what, um, um, whether, whether institutions um, are subject to, um, or, or whether resources are subject to um, uh, sustainable conditions that um, make them unviable or more viable have become a, a dominant way that we think about these concepts. And I think, and, and candidly, I think honestly, and this is partially the trigger that led us to write our book, is I also think that the conversation has become more polarized. So um, the way we think about property has, has been laden with ideological backgrounds that shape the way we think about what property should be doing. Um, and those ideological backgrounds are generally cut along, um, you know, political perceptions of what you think the state should be doing. And so, you know, one of the things that we try to do in squatting in the state is we try to unpack that those ideological backgrounds away from property analysis by staying in the mess and, and, um, identifying the ver all the varying ways that uh, the framing of the property dispute or the property challenge uh, shapes the resolution of the problem. And so, you know, one of the things that we do in the, in the book is we talk about the need to evaluate problems from the standpoint of owners and to evaluate, evaluate the problem from the standpoint of squatters and from the standpoint of neighbors and from the standpoint of institutions um, and from the standpoint of the state and understand how all of these different groups um, have needs for resilience and to identify where that resilience comes from in shaping the way that we think about problems. And when we frame problems, you know, in the way that property disputes are typically framed, it prevents us from seeing the entire picture, from seeing that big outlier of where um, all that resilience uh, where all those resiliency needs come from. You don't have to answer this question. Do you feel like the polarization that you saw in the evangelical church growing up is now something that's seen more widely and more publicly? Yes. Uh, I think I think in a lot of ways, what I think what you saw in the 1990s um, in the seating of that was largely built around abortion disputes or abortion uh, problems or uh, yeah, problems, abortion um, uh, uh, rhetoric, you know, discourse um, has that has continued, but that has fueled um, all other uh, forms of polarized discourse. And so now you're, you sort of find yourself on the, on the, on the space of saying you are either, you're either in one place or in the other place. Um, yeah, I think back to a statement that President Obama made back in, in 2009, 
I think it's 2009 or 2010. Um, and he was asked about uh, uh, stance on pro-life. And he said something along the lines of, um, well, no one likes abortion, right? No one, no one is actively, you know, like thinks that this is a great thing, but it's necessary, you know, this is necessary. It's a necessary, um, and, and, you know, in some ways, in some of our circles, I don't know that we can have that conversation anymore. Um, if we, if we were, if we were just, if I'm just being honest, you know, because it, because the conversation is a very pragmatic one, right. That says that there is a need for legislation and for women to be able to have viability and choice over their own bodies. And even though it is not a pleasant thing to think about, and it's not a pleasant thing that anyone should, anyone really wants to promote individually, you know, nobody is excited when this happens. It is, it is an instrumentality that's necessary for us to have a viable democratic and um, uh, uh, representative union. And so, you know, I think in a lot of ways that pragmatic approach has been lost where people like President Obama have now been sort of pigeoned over and said, you know, from one side, he is way radical left and um and shouldn't um and and therefore because he expressed any sort of of expression that supports pro-life movements that he is um um that anything else has tainted whatever else he's done and then on the other side he is way he is not he is not radical enough he is not you know he is not supportive enough of women's rights because you know, he recognized because he said, you know, that that this this thing that has become our our um, identity marker. So I, I think it absolutely has been shaped by that movement. And I think it's filtered into all other things uh, because it has become the way that we see the state interacting vis-a-vis -vis, um, our religious life and even people who are not religious that are, you know, I, I probably shouldn't say that, so I'm, uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, this is great. Do you think that the work that you do around encouraging students and also inviting readers of your writing to evaluate problems from various standpoints and perspectives can help address this polarization? And do you think that vulnerability theory can or does play a role in addressing polarization or in bringing us back to a more pragmatic way of addressing policy issues? Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, I think vulnerability theory is one of those theories that is not necessarily subject to, it's not dependent upon an ideological framework, right? Because we are all vulnerable. We all have needs, right? And we all have self-serving needs for resilience. Um, and, you know, one of the things I think that vulnerability theory has the potential for doing is recognizing the role that that public discourse or that religious discourse or that ideological discourse, how that fills a need for resilience, right? So it fills sort of that, it fills a space of resiliency that individuals uh, tap into. But I also think you know, so 
so do I think that, you know, what I do in the classroom or, or what I write impacts students? Um, I'm not sure that what I do in the classroom impacts students as much as walking with students outside of class. Because I think, I think the classroom is an opportunity to have a very structured dialogue. But I really think the moments where I have the most impact on students are outside of my outside of class. Um, and and that and and those are the moments that I think really have the chance to to you know shape the way students think about the law and think about how the law is interacting and to challenge their assumptions on the law. Um, I mean, I do think class has an important plays an important function and important role in that concept, and often oftentimes tees up those conversations. But where I think the mentoring really happens or the, or the impact of students really happens is, is in the mentoring and in, um, and in walking with students and thinking about how these things impact their ordinary lives. So. In the same vein, what impact would you like your work either as a mentor, as a professor, or as an academic researcher to have and of course, I, I recognize that those might be three different answers. Uh, I, I mean, I think they're all the same, you know, because I think, you know, I really think about the experience in, in law as being recursive. You know, it, it's um, uh, what I do in the classroom affects what I write. It affects the way I think about students. It affects the way I think about myself um, in the context of the things I'm writing. So, you know, you know, the impact I hope it has, and I'm not sure, you know, I guess it's one of those questions that time will tell, right? But the impact I hope it has is that it prompts students to be um, a couple of things deeper. I want them to think more critically. I want them to think more introspectively. Um, and I want individuals to think more introspectively. I want, you know, us as a community to think more critically about how many of the ideas that we have are ones that we've inherited, not necessarily ones that we've critically evaluated. Um, either because we're part of communities that, 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 that promote those ideas or they're part of, um, or they're part been passed down from families and from um, individuals. And then I, I also hope that students see um, generosity. Um, one of the things I hope to promote in my classes is a spirit of generous dialogue where, you know, we can effectively debate and evaluate and critique each other's ideas in charitable ways without necessarily uh, stooping to the low of name calling um, or um, or pigeonholing or framing each other as one thing or the other, right? That, and that, and again, I think that's one of the values of vulnerability is that it cuts across all races, genders, you know, economic status, everything. It cuts across those those boundaries, and then it forces us to deal with the fact that we each have different levels of resilience that that enable us to interact and to participate in 
um, in institutions and democratic processes and in the life of being a human that um, uh, that not everyone experiences in the same way. What work do you do outside of teaching and writing to further your ideas and to kind of address some of these um, issues that you're seeing with the way we talk about housing and property? Um, so I work with a few um, uh, community groups and um, organizing groups. So for example, one group I've been working with is the Inland uh, Community Organizing Network, ICON, in the Los Angeles area, uh, which has taken a focus of housing. You know, if you know Los Angeles, you know Los Southern California has major affordable housing issues um, that impact homelessness and impact uh, the ability of, of low-income persons to acquire uh, sustainable housing um, in, in, in communities near where they work and economic opportunities. And so, um, you know, one of the things I was doing last week was I spoke with that group about opportunities to think about pragmatic ways to interact within the housing pro property paradigm. So we spent a lot of time talking about resiliency gaps. And uh, so, you know, one of the things that I'll be doing with them over the forthcoming months, uh, because they are very interested in thinking about housing, is reading a few things um, in in sort of a three different sessions where we read something together and we talk about the issues, the policy issues, and how, do, how should we think about it? How should we think about this as a, as a uh, challenge for local communities like uh, Southern California, the Pomona uh, Inland Valley uh, in, uh, in the Los Angeles area? We are getting to the end of our time. Is there anything that you'd like listeners to remember about our conversation today? I think the the one thing I would take away or or, or um, um, uh, maybe end with is the need for us as lawyers and as people thinking about the law to um, to recognize the role of resiliency gaps in shaping the way the law plays out in people's lives. And I think as lawyers, we become so attuned and affixed to rights and right-based talk that we miss out on the fact that resiliency gaps oftentimes are far more formative and shape in more important ways the way individuals interact with the law than rights do. Um, and that's not to diminish the role of rights, but it's just simply to say that uh, rights may not be the most important thing uh, as we think about the everyday impact of, of the law. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.